1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Durkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke.
0: Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're coming to you uh, remote from our satellite studio <laughs> off of the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula.
1: On location.
0: On location. Yes. Bringing, <laughs> Doing the research and bringing <laughs> the hard truths to you.
1: Yes, the... Uh, the zero dollars that we've made on the podcast has really paid off, <laughs> and so we decided. Actually, we had a a a trip planned to, to uh, uh, with our wives to to it's to celebrate Becky's birthday. Was what the point of this was? Yeah, initially. Yeah, yeah, and right. then COVID and things got moved around, but you know what? We will not be stopped by bottomless soda packages or steel drums, you know, inviting us out onto the deck, we will, we will push forward.
0: And it, we actually were, we were at, uh, we just left uh, yesterday, we went to Chichen Itza, which was a pretty amazing uh, experience. And so we wanted to use kind of that as, as a jumping off point to discuss a couple of things. But first, we wanted to read a couple of, uh, well, a, an email, um, a couple of emails that we, we received. The first one uh, comes in um, with just glowing praise. So, have you, this comes from, uh, from Jeff. So, have you ever watched one of those teaser videos on social media that are promising something utterly and completely phenomenal that will change your life forever? And you watch and watch and you watch until you know you've watched way too long. And then you watch that long again because you're totally intrigued with the promised outcome. And then you get to the end and realize you've just wasted a big chunk of your life that you'll never recover. Yeah. We've been listening to the Abraham Lincoln podcast. Still haven't hit the end yet.
1: That was That's great. Jeff. I think actually that should be in the description. <laughs> I feel like when people <laughs> download it, what it should. What is this
0: podcast about? Have you ever wasted a lot of your time? expecting something to happen. Have and you never wanted
1: asked. answers to questions that won't ever be answered by hosts constantly deflecting the issues? <laughs> Tune in to the Standard of Truth podcast. Thanks,
0: Jeff. Keep the praise coming in. That was, that's, that's tremendous. We, we received another uh, email um, that uh, was also very, was very nice. Um, this come to, comes to us from Brandon. Just let me start off and say how much I enjoy your podcast I originally heard Dr. Dirk Mott on the Follow Him podcast that my wife and I enjoy very much. Uh, you're welcome uh, John and uh, and Hank for the plug for Follow Him. Yeah, they Him. They, need they need it. They need us yeah. desperately plugging I, their podcast. I'm pretty
1: sure they I mean we we probably should do a full-scale advertising <laughs> or they <laughs> I worry about, about their hemorrhaging membership, uh, right, as we speak. You, you
0: see in the wild those synergistic relationships of, like, the rhinoceros and then the bird that's on top of the rhino looking out, right? Yeah, w- we
1: would be like the, the, uh, bo- the bacteria on the bottom was, of the bird's feet. That's yeah. hilarious.
0: That's literally what I was about oh. to say. But anyway, so uh, we enjoy them very much. Um, follow him, podcast is great. Uh, I very much enjoyed the way you laid out the history of the revelations and put them in context. You can probably just skip this next bit. That, that's what he says. But now we're going to to read it. When I heard uh, when I heard that you had your own podcast, I immediately tuned in and listened to the entirety of it in in a week. Granted, this was last year, so there wasn't quite so many episodes. I've really enjoyed them. I especially like what you said about sources. I've had two brothers leave the church and have that have become atheists. Side note: I find it interesting and sad that when they first left, they still believed in God and Christ, but about Six to eight months later, I asked them if they had any faith, and the answer was no. And now it's been years, so I don't know how far down they've gone. They are pretty anti, but still respect my belief and faith in Christ and the restoration. All of the anti-things they said uh, or sent were actually covered by your podcast. Things like how there are good sources and bad sources, things... Like all of the witnesses supposedly claiming that they were coerced by Joseph Smith and never actually saw the plates or a vision. All of which you answered. I can't express to you how grateful I am for the time and effort you put into this. Back to my question. After Joseph Smith was murdered, and there were many offshoot groups, I would love to know more about these groups, but I am most curious about the Strangite branch. From what I gathered, he tried to mimic Joseph's experience, even translated plates. I know the adversary sets up his kingdom the same uh, the same time as Christ sets up his, and it has always been so. Must have been terribly frustrating for Brigham Young as well. Always, sorry for, oh anyway, sorry for the long email. Just wanted to thank, just wanted to say, I think you were both doing an amazing job. So Brother Dirk Mott and Brother LeDuc, sorry if I misspelled any of your names, uh, you did, Brandon. You you, you, you did. You misspelled mine. Garrett, you got right. You nailed his. Um, but uh, well, Leduc, the name is
1: on the podcast. It's it's true. <laughs> it's,
0: it's
1: we need to get your name up there. No, no, no. We should not. I think I think your wife said we weren't allowed. I to. think
0: I think it's it's good on your part to to make me want it more by not putting my name anywhere. Just knowing that I could be replaced at the drop of a hat. Yeah,
1: I feel like I need you to have the motivation. <laughs> I feel like. I need to have that Twinkie dangling on a stick in front of you. That's right. It's the only way to keep you going.
0: Looking forward to the next episode. And just so that you know, I, uh, you have at least one person in Arizona that listens.
1: Ah. My so brother also lives in Arizona, so. There you go. There's two. Well, he doesn't listen. <laughs> that's true. I mean, why would he? You know?
0: um, but so th- that was a very, so first of all, that's a very sincere, kind, and nice um, uh, email and second of all, um, that actually is a topic that we do want to discuss in the future. Not not in this podcast, no. obviously. Now, it would make sense to read this and then go in to discuss the topic that he brought up. We won't be doing Well,
1: that, that would have mitigated Jeff's criticism <laughs> were we to. Combine the two? Yeah, I feel like in order to read both of those, we needed to say that's a great topic. We will talk about that at some point in the future, just not just not now or ever. But, <laughs> no, but, we will. We yeah, are planning on
0: it. The succession crisis and after Joe Smith was gone. We are ahead.
1: planning on it. But, you know, I, I on a side note to your uh, commentary about people leaving the church and losing their faith, I, I, I um, you know, it's a phenomenon that I've noticed as well. Um, and, you know, someone I'm sure could just chalk it up to say, well, they feel so cheated by religion or jaded by it that that's the reason why they no longer believe. Obviously, there's some of that to it. I mean, and every person who leaves the church has different reasons why. They have different motivations why. They have different, you know, culture and life experiences that, that go into that. But one thing that is, if if you're a, a Latter-day Saint living, you know, in the United States or Canada, it, it actually, I think there are some aspects of uh, of our religion that people really love even if they have a problem with the church and its organization or its leadership or its stances on certain issues or whatever the, the reason is. And, and you know, uh, and I think that kind of leads to it. I mean, if you're a Latter-day Saint, you believe in essentially universal salvation. You know, y- y- you believe that everyone is eventually going to be saved from hellfire, except for this, you know, the very few sons of perdition, right? Everyone's going to go to heaven. And, and that heaven, the lowest kingdom of it, is so great and so glorious that you can't comprehend it. Well, well, that's a pretty expansive view of, of salvation. No one's going to hell, forever anyway. And then secondly, we not only believe that everyone's going to be saved from eternal hellfire, we believe that everyone has an equal opportunity to be exalted in the celestial kingdom, I think that that type of universality of salvation is very difficult to replicate outside. It's certainly essentially impossible to replicate inside of Christianity, and it's very difficult to replicate um, in in other faith systems as well. And so, you know, that's one of the ways that you you can kind of feel an emptiness. If you, I mean, I, I have talked with multiple people who've, who've left the church and then some have come back and some who haven't. And that is one of the aspects that I think drives a loss of faith entirely is, you know, it, you, you think that you've got a problem with the church because of polygamy or tithing, dollars not being spent the right way or whatever, and you go to your local Baptist church and it, you know it's exciting for a little while, but when you start to drill down on the theology and you realize so anyone who doesn't profess jesus's name in this world is going to burn in hell forever no matter whether they live in china afghanistan indonesia it doesn't matter if they don't say jesus is lord in this life they burn in hell forever
0: i think that there's there's a couple of things i've i've actually given this
1: quite a bit of are you planning on a thought i feel like maybe you, I feel like you're giving a little bit too much thought to well, it. This is the reason why we why can't you put, up your, name. Name. Yeah, yeah, we put your name. If we put your name up I'm, there. I am just, I'm just and, one and, bad Fast and Testimony is,
0: meeting away from leaving the church. Which is the next Fast and Testimony <laughs> meeting. <laughs> well, no. So I've, I've given this a lot of thought, too. And th- there, are, there are lots of things about this. The salvation piece is, is a major one for me. But we've, we've actually spent a decent amount of time talking about some of just the the logical problems and theological problems that come from God creating everybody out of nothing. The idea that uh, I was actually having a conversation with my son uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, we were listening to, to somebody, uh, some some podcast and the topic of religion came up and, and they talked about how, well... God never intended us to be here. He intended us to be in the Garden of Eden forever until Adam and Eve partook of the fruit. And this is something that you've addressed several yeah. times on the podcast. But
1: standard Christian theology. It's probably one of the most one of the most surprising aspects of Christian theology to a Latter-day Saint would be that Christians do not believe, and we've said this before, but just to reiterate, so you don't have to go through all of our unindexed podcasts <laughs> to find this. Um that, that they don't believe that you could not have had reproduction if the fall hadn't occurred. That is a Latter-day Saint right. belief that comes from the Book of Mormon and obviously other prophets. So Christians hate Adam and Eve. They hate Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve destroyed the world. The world is terrible because of them. But they think, had Adam and Eve not you know, grabbed that apple... We would all be living in a paradise garden of Eden today.
0: And the problem is, is that that the belief also extends that, that Adam and Eve didn't exist in some pre mortal way, that they were snapped into existence. And ultimately then, at that point, you blame Adam and Eve, but at the end of the day, it ultimately is God's fault if he has all power. So when the person said, that God never intended us to be in this state, well, that's that's just not possible, right? Because God is all powerful, God's all knowing, God knew that these things would have happened and just make a better Adam and Eve. And so there's 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 these kinds of theological and logical issues that is explained by the restored gospel that if if I was to fall away, it would also I, I, it would be a very difficult thing for me to accept any other form of Christianity because it doesn't answer those core questions.
1: Yeah, I think that there are questions that many Christians don't even actually ask because it's not part of their theology. So it's just what's accepted, that God created the world perfectly and Adam and Eve fell, whereas uh, Latter-day Saint is believing that God created a world that he knew would become fallen in order for people to grow and progress and to become like God. That the fall isn't just the cosmic disaster, the fall is what god meant to have happen because it was the purpose of the creation of the earth
0: and for for me i think that uh, let's say that i have an issue or a question about a particular thing that i don't understand i i have uh, a strong faith and belief in the savior and outside of the restored gospel i just can't get an understanding of him in the way that that makes sense any other way and so um anyway it's it's it is an interesting question that this person brings up and um, something that uh, you know I know that is an issue for lots of people to fall away again yeah, like you said.
1: It would be I mean obviously you'd find anecdotal evidence from any person for the reason why they say you'd ta- it'd take a sociological study to determine all of that but I mean I think anecdotally that does seem to happen a great deal and certainly much more so than Someone who leaves a Presbyterian denomination to go to a foursquare gospel church, right? That, uh, and I think that's because they're um, they're not giving up so much in theological absolute that that you are when you're a latter-day saint i mean you're giving up the pre-existence you're giving up eternal marriage you're giving up the, the nature
0: of jesus and heavenly Father. yep
1: you're giving up the nature of god and jesus being separate beings you're giving up the nature of mankind and who you are and what your ultimate potential is you're giving up um the idea that god is perfectly just not just we say the word just like, oh yeah, God's justice. He's just sending 90% of everyone who ever lived to burn in hell forever, but he's totally just. I mean, that instead, literally everyone will have an equal chance. And, and, and to me, I feel like if you value equality in the eternities, it, it is hard to, to find that. Um, now, I understand the Christian perspective. I mean, from the Christian perspective, all of us are sinners and all of us should burn in hell. So we shouldn't whine about the fact that so many of us go because all of us should go. And Jesus is so merciful, God is so merciful that he saves any of us at all when he shouldn't. I understand that perspective. Um, It just goes back to the question Richard raised, right? If God is all-powerful, then why did God create this plan where almost none of his children could be saved? Because he knew that. The moment he created it
0: and you and you can't because he's all-powerful and all-knowing and he created Adam out of nothing he ultimately
1: is responsible yeah, for he all. could have made him allergic to fruit that's what <laughs> I, he could that's have the, he, he could have made it so that if he touched that apple he broke out in hives Eve's reaching for an EpiPen I mean he could have he could have done all kinds of things to 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 keep that or he could have just made it so that that wasn't an option God could have made it so that there wasn't an option that one person's actions destroyed the entirety of humanity he could have, so why didn't he? Well, my argument would be that that's not what happened. So anyway, uh, great. Uh, thanks for your email. Um, sorry, uh, the difficulties with our loved ones, it's 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 all very difficult. And, you know, great uh, leaders in the church, men and women who have devoted their life to God have, have, have dealt with siblings and children and spouses who, who no longer share the same faith. And I think you're right to just... Keep loving them and um, and know that God is merciful. I think that's one of the great aspects of the gospel. So we also, um, I think, uh, wanted to uh, the topic we were going to talk about today, aside from the Garden of Eden, um, is uh, we we wanted to talk a little bit about our journeyings in uh, in the Yucatan. We went to go, you know, see Chichen Itza and some of the. Uh, the, the marvelous uh, Mayan ruins there. And as part of our, our, our trip, you know, of course it sparks an interest among a Latter-day Saint about um, Native American uh, civilizations because of the Book of Mormon. And if you'll recall in a previous podcast, one that's also unindexed and that I can't point you to, um, we talked about one of the arguments against Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon That's kind of thrown out there, but not in any cohesive way, is the book View of the Hebrews that was published a few years before the the Book of Mormon. The argument in the the book View of the Hebrews outlines the theory that the Native Americans from uh, North and South America are actually descendants from the tribes of Israel. Now, of course, that is certainly what the Book of Mormon is arguing, at least in part. And so, you can see why a, a modern criticism of the Book of Mormon, and it is a modern criticism, by the way. This is not a criticism that happens in Joseph Smith's time. No one is saying when the Book of Mormon comes out, oh, I know it, he stole it from the view of the Hebrews. That only comes later, uh, when people are trying to desperately to find an origin of the Book of Mormon. And the reason why they're trying so desperately to find it is every argument you make is just not a very good argument. Well, Joseph Smith wrote it himself, Okay, let's read everything else Joseph Smith wrote. Well, okay, then someone else wrote it for him. Okay, who is that person and what is our timeline and what's our evidence of that? Well, he stole it from someone else and that's how he wrote it. That's his Falastus Hurlbut and the Solomon Spaulding Manuscript idea. Again, those are arguments that help people sleep at night when they don't want to believe in the Book of Mormon, but they're not actually arguments that are demonstrable. And in the case of the Solomon Spaulding Manuscript, They are utterly refuted by actual historical evidence. So this argument we talked about that, while Joseph just read about, you know, he read View of the Hebrews and it made him go, you know what, I got, what if I wrote an entire book that sounded like the Bible, that was entirely outside of my own capabilities, that was astonishing to my wife, friends, and everyone else who heard heard me dictate it, but I came up with the words myself, but the idea I stole from View of the Hebrews... I'll just, you know, create the book. Like I said, it's not, there's a reason why that argument isn't being made by uh, professors of religious history that are not Latter-day Saints. If that was a really good argument, they would be making it. And, And as we've said before in the podcast, if the only person who's making your argument about the origins of the Book of Mormon comes from a YouTube channel or a subreddit, then that's how you know it's not a good argument. Because if it was a really good argument, someone with a degree would be making it. And that's that's a pretty standard way to look at it. Um, at any rate, we said in that, that one of the things that's kind of unknown is that there actually are quite a few people who assume at least that the Native Americans are in some way descended from the, the House of Israel. Now that might seem weird to us today, but we're talking about a thoroughly biblically imbued society, if you are living in the early 19th century, you think that literally everything that ever happens, it is God willing it. So if you go somewhere and you find a whole bunch of people who you didn't think should be there, well, then of course, God is going to will it. And it's not a very big leap from God is going to will it to if God's going to will it, then it's going to be members of the House of Israel that are part of what God is willing. Uh, And we mentioned on that podcast that, in fact, the earliest book written in the Americas was uh, written by a guy by the name of Friar Diego de Landa. Um, He is a hiss and a byword among historians and, honestly, modern-day Mayans um, because he uh, as the local uh, religious official in the 1560s in uh, the Yucatan, took it upon himself. So this is Spanish conquest happens. At early Spanish conquest. Landa examines many of the statues, uh, the the stela, um, uh, and the especially the manuscripts that the mines have. The mines have many manuscripts. Um, many scrolls and he decides that they are heretical and that they are causing these supposedly converted minds to catholicism to worship false gods and so he orders all of them burned he orders many of the statues destroyed he orders many of the the the, the stelae, you know carved out and 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 broken so as a historian he is well, a monster. I mean, I mean, the the worst thing you could do in history is destroy historical records. It's the the worst thing that can happen. On the other hand, as much as Mayan historians and Mayans themselves hate Landa for his, you know, his vitriolic heresy hunting that destroyed so much of Mayan culture, Landa did after the fact write a book describing Mayan culture and uh, the, the Yucatan from this 16th century perspective. Now, I am not going to say that everything in that book is endorsed. And, and, and obviously, he is a conquistador, uh, a friar with the Catholic Church who is looking with nothing but utter contempt upon the natives and seeing them as, as objects of salvation You know, but certainly in nowhere near as equal. The book is filled with all kinds of racist things that you would notice from uh, the 16th century. At the same time, he explains how Mayan language works. He provides pronunciation guides to Mayan language that, that have been helpful for scholars studying today. He also provides some of the history, which we could have gotten from the scrolls he destroyed, but now we have to go through the filter of him. So take everything we're about to say with a grain of salt. But Richard, for instance,
0: for instance, um, as it relates specifically to the the reference of um, kind of the view of the Hebrews and the and the origin of the native peoples here, uh, he wrote. So this is, what is it, 1566.
1: Is that yeah mid, mid yeah mid 16th century. So I'm not entirely sure when he penned this because it gets published later, but. Some old men of
0: of Yucatan say that they have heard from their ancestors that this country was peopled by a certain race who came from the east, whom God delivered by opening for them 12 roads through the sea. If this is true, all of the inhabitants of the Indies must be of Jewish descent, because the Straits of Magellan, having been passed, they must have spread over more than 2,000 leagues of territory now governed by Spain. So... Um, in the mid-1500s, here we have this, this reference.
1: The very first assessment is, well, these people are here. They claim God led them here through the sea. Well, they must be from the House of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that's definitive. It's certainly not archaeological in any way. The point is the idea that uh, the American Indians in some way descended from the House of Israel, or as he says from the Jewish people, is not does not originate with the Book of Mormon, nor with view of the Hebrews. Um, it's actually something that originates in the very first assessment because Landa, in his parochial, you know, conquistador, uh, you know, dismissive sort of way as he's looking down on these people, he also tends to see certain things that he sees, as similarities, um, and 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 that that strike him among the Mayan people. And again, this is all according to his account. Although there are some uh, uh, archaeological evidences for some of the things he's going to say that you can still find, and you know some of the some of the carvings he didn't destroy. So there's there is there is some cooperation. And I'm certainly not an expert on this, but there are people who are. Um, but another example of something like this
0: baptism is another example Um, reading from the book baptism is not found anywhere in the Indies save here in Yucatan and Even a word meaning to be born anew or a second time the same as the Latin Thus in the language of the Yucatan shahil means to be born anew or a second time, but only however in composition its origin uh, we have been unable to learn But it is something that has always been used and for which they have had such devotion that no one fails to receive it. They had such reverence for it that those guilty of sins or who knew that they were about to sin were obliged to confess to the priest in order to receive it. And they had such faith in it that in no manner did they ever take it a second time. They believed that in receiving it they should... Uh, or they acquired a predisposition to good conduct and habits, protecting them against the har- being harmed by the devils in their earthly affairs, and that through it, and living a good life, they would attain a beatitude hereafter, uh, which, like that of Mohammed, consisted of eating and drinking. So there, there's another example of something that uh, boy, that's an interesting... An interesting coincidence there,
1: right? And and look again, we're not. <clears throat> I'm we're not making an argument that oh, look, this proves uh, that the Book of Mormon. The point is, this is the earliest book that's written on Native Americans in the Americas, and you can see this attempt to try to make connections that are there. Um, and there's been all kinds of scholarship that's been done on this from you know uh, Latter, some Latter-day Saint scholars as well as uh, those who are not. And and I think that the 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 discussion about where exactly the Book of Mormon took place is a is one that that is it varies from being interesting to some latter day saints to being a stumbling block to others in the sense that, well, if we can't prove exactly where Zarahemla is, then the whole thing didn't happen, right Um to one that, you know, there are people who are dogmatic about where they think it took place. Now it's not a question of where it took place. It's a, I know where it took place. And you know, I the point of this podcast isn't to say and let me tell you because I was in the Yucatan. It's obviously it was here. Um the the the, the church actually doesn't have a position on that. Now the the frustrating thing about that is even though the church doesn't have a position and the church has said we don't know where it happened, there are still people who are very adamant and angry at times if people don't accept their explanation of where they think it happened. Let me just read to you from uh, the church's statement on this. They, they uh, have had multiple statements, but this is one from 2019. So, relatively recently. Called Book of Mormon Geography. The Book of Mormon includes a history of ancient people who migrated from the Near East to the Americas. This history contains information about the places they lived, including descriptions of landforms, natural features and the distances, and cardinal directions between important points. The internal consistency of these descriptions is one of the striking features of the Book of Mormon. Since the publication of the Book of Mormon in 1830, members and leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have expressed numerous opinions about the specific locations of the events discussed in the book. Some believe that the history depicted in the Book of Mormon, with the exception of the events in the Near East, occurred in North America, while others believe that it occurred in Central America or South America. Although church members continue to discuss such theories today, the church's only position is that the events of the Book of Mormon, the events the Book of Mormon describes, took place in the ancient Americas. So when someone's wondering what's the church's position on where the Book of Mormon took place, The church is very clear about it. The church's only position is that the events uh, the Book of Mormon describes took place in the ancient Americas. Now, that's important because there are people who say, no, I know definitively it took place here in Peru. Well, as far as the church is concerned, the church doesn't think that. Although, one of the more frustrating aspects of people who feel very passionate about different geographical locations is that they tend to accuse someone who doesn't readily accept whatever their theory is as somehow not being faithful to the church. Being faithful to the church is following what their actual statement is. And that is, we don't know. That doesn't mean that you can't speculate. It doesn't mean that you can't say, oh, I've got this evidence here, or I like this author's theory here. But it's important every time you make that speculation or discussion that you reiterate that the church doesn't actually have a position. Even if it just so happened to be a a friend of yours who knew a 70 who said this, the church doesn't have a position on it. That's very different than uh, what you sometimes hear. The statement goes on. The Prophet Joseph, Joseph Smith himself accepted what he felt was evidence of Book of Mormon civilizations in both North and Central America. While traveling with Zion's camp in 1834, Joseph wrote his wife that they were wandering over the plains of the Nephites, recounting occasionally the history of the Book of Mormon, roving over the mounds, that the once beloved people of the Lord, picking up their skulls and bones, and as as a proof of divine authenticity. Well, obviously, Joseph's not traveling through Central or South America, so you can see that he's assuming that any Native American things are Lamanites and Nephites. In 1842... The church newspaper, The Times and Seasons, published articles under Joseph Smith's editorship uh, that identified the ruins of ancient native civilizations in Mexico and Central America as further evidence of the Book of Mormon's historicity. The church does not take a position on the specific geographic locations of the Book of Mormon events in the ancient Americas. Speculation on the geography of the Book of Mormon may mislead instead of enlighten, such as a study can be a distract such a study can be a distraction from its divine purpose individuals may have their own opinions regarding book of mormon geography and other such matters about which the lord has not spoken however the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 apostles urge leaders and members not to advocate those personal theories in any setting or manner that would imply either prophetic or church support for those theories all parties should strive to avoid contention on these matters. Speaking of the Book of Mormon's history and geography, President Russell M. Nelson taught, Interesting as these matters may be, study of the Book of Mormon is most rewarding when one focuses on its primary purpose, to testify of Jesus Christ. By comparison, all other issues are incidental. So, I read the entire church statement on this because I'm well aware that people listening might feel very strongly one way or the other about what they think happened um, as far as where the Book of Mormon took place. There might be someone listening who feels like, you know, that that they're at a total loss because there's no archaeological evidence that matches up precisely the way they want. There might be people listening who think they know for certain that one of the theories about where the Book of Mormon took place is, is not only true, but it's actually from God. The church has taken very careful pains to say, um, we we don't really know. And if you are ever to the point where you are Advocating a theory to the denigration of someone else who's a member of the church, well, then you've clearly gone beyond what the church's statement has said. That that can't be what the church wants you to be doing.
0: So, I mean, that that said, when so yesterday we're at Chitzeniza, it was absolutely amazing. It was beautiful, a very cool, very cool experience. And and when you're there and you're seeing some of the the um, the things that are depicted in its architecture and some of the things that we're being told by our guide you can't help but to say oh that's interesting that's Mm -hmm. interesting that's interesting you said something that I thought was was interesting yesterday where you were saying that's all it's all interesting and this is very very cool and I I can see how somebody would really throw themselves into it and really want to study and understand these things but but then people take a a step too far and saying this is a definitive thing here
1: Right. You go from uh, not, um, you know, you go from, oh, this is a very interesting thing to this is literally the only thing that possibly could have happened. And if anyone disputes it, then they don't actually have a testimony. You go from, wow, isn't it interesting that there's some similarities between, you know, ancient Native American, you know, circumcision rituals and and uh hebrew circumcision rituals to i found lehi's house and this is its address (laughs) and i didn't know that he had a stone wall rather than a picket fence outside of it but clearly he must have right so it you don't want to go too far on it and and the reality is people who are are scholars who are trained in these fields of archaeology and history they don't want to take it too far because they understand that there's so much we don't know. I know that one of Richard's great pet peeves in life, aside from being my friend, (laughs) number two, and only slightly less well-known as this, that uh, when people definitively talk about how we know something from American archeology, span that they are being definitive about things that they don't even that they don't even know. So, so I, I, for instance of this, in my own life, when I was in college, it was known, and I mean it was in 100 percent, every, you know anthropology textbook you read, that there were no horses in the United States, or well, what would become the United States, in North America or South America. There were no horses at all. Um, you know, after 20,000 BC, right? So therefore, you know, one of the great claims that's made against uh, the Book of Mormon being true uh, by detractors is, well, it talks about horses being in it. So therefore, there's, you know, it's a lie. Joseph Smith made that up. He rode horses into that because we all know that horses, you know, all died out. you know, first of all, it was there were no horses in the ancient Americas. Then they discovered some prehistoric horses. And so, okay, yes, but they all died out by 20,000 B.C. And then that date just keeps moving. It's moved in the past 20 years. I mean, in the past 20 years, it's gone from, you know, no horses at all since 20,000 to 13,000 to 12,000 to 10,000 to 5,000. And, you know, the, the reality is there's even some anecdotal, Um, discoveries of people claiming that that there are horse bones that are found um, around the the turn of the millennia. um, Well, during the time we're talking about. Um, There's also been a movement from um, some indigenous scholars uh, to argue that the Eurocentric explanation of well, Europeans came and Europeans introduced uh, horses to the Indians Recently there's a, a an, an indigenous scholar who wrote a dissertation arguing that in fact that is all based on the Europeans telling Native American story. And she thinks it's an ethnocentrism and she thinks that it's a that, you know, she did oral interviews with various tribes and and all of them claimed to have history with the horses long before um long before contact with whites now of course there's a, a a gap between oral history and what you can archeologically prove but i think that the the whole point of of richard's great pet peeve is that when someone states something definitively as being the case or not being the case what they really mean is we haven't found any evidence of x yet, or we haven't found convincing evidence of X yet, rather than there's absolutely no possible way. When people talk about things like horses in the Book of Mormon, when they're using it as their argument, they don't say, yes, they found, you know, what appear to be drawings of horses that, that, you know, that would be in the right time period. They appear to have found toys or or sculptures that might depict, they don't say that, they say it's absolutely proven that there were absolutely no horses here, and Joseph Smith made that up. That's what they say, right? Yeah,
0: no, that's right. It it is it is it is a funny thing for me to be so uh, irritated about, given mm-hmm. the fact that it, it is kind of a silly thing. But the very nature that it's a silly thing is the thing that's so frustrating to me as it relates to uh, a person having it be a major hit to their testimony. That oh, we haven't found haven't found horses yet. So, and one of the reasons that it is so uh, ridiculous, is because there's so much of the Amazon and so much of Central and South America that hasn't been dis- hasn't been explored or in any real and meaningful way. It's not until fairly recently that they're using lidar technology to be able to do kind of a, a deeper search, cutting through all the vegetation to be able to find. Um, additional civilizations that they didn't think previously existed. Just last year, they found on the Yucatan Peninsula an enormous uh, population that previously was completely undiscovered. And in Guatemala, they had what they thought was a fairly large Uh, area, a a huge metropolitan area in Guatemala that they thought might be as high as 5 million people that inhabited that area. With LiDAR technology, they they discovered that over 60,000 houses in that area with a population that could have been as high as 15 million. This was a couple of years ago. And so the idea, just the idea that, oh, we can definitively say that there aren't anything in this place is just it's ridiculous the
1: reality is it, it's shifting and lidar technology is a, it's a it's a new aspect of archaeology in in these various places where you you can't find these ruins just because of the jungle overgrowth but using this this laser you are able to to find it um the the number of sites that are unexcavated, meaning that they have found with this technology, but no one has put shovel one in the ground to find out what's there, is essentially 97, 98% of known sites at this point. We are at the very beginning point of archaeological work in in in, in North and South America, not not the end point, not the not the oh yes, we have it all and 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 this is all that we know. I mean obviously this is not to argue that that you know someone might be like, well, how come we don't have more evidence of this? And the answer, of course, is I don't know. But there's a difference between the absence of evidence and definitive evidence to the contrary. And that's one of the things we've talked about when it comes to sources. Simply saying, well, I mean, if I was Joseph Smith, I would have written down about the first vision lots of times. That's something that sounds like it's a great argument, but it's actually not a very good argument. Because first of all, you're not Joseph Smith. Unless Joseph Smith happens to be listening, then I guess he is. But uh, the, 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 the reality is you don't know what you would do with a powerful sacred experience. And I guarantee there are people listening to us right now who at some point in their life thought if they ever had a miracle happen to them, they would write about it and tell everybody about it. And they're thinking, right now, I didn't even write that in my journal.
0: And here's the other thing, too, is let's say then evidence is found of horses. Well, then that critic just checks that off of the list and moves on to the next thing.
1: Yeah, no let's talk about elephants. <laughs> at any rate, um, I think this... this, uh, this wider discussion of you know where the book of mormon took place is it has a great deal of acrimony in it and it's important to know that if you ever come across these you know acrimonious arguments from one side or the other that they're arguing about something that wasn't argued about in joseph smith's time as the uh, statement from the church demonstrates in in Joseph Smith's time, they don't think that they know exactly the place that Lehi's house was built when he first got to the New World. They instead assume that every Native American and every Native American civilization is all part of the Lamanite and Nephite thing. Well, well where's the city of Zarahemla? You know, it's it's very interesting, right? You know, there are certainly Latter-day Saint-oriented tours in the Yucatan, in which someone, you know, is saying like, now I know for certain, here's the city bountiful, and this must have been the river Sidon, right? Again, we we don't know any of those things. And I understand that that we want to know them because we feel like, oh, this proves what I believe about the Book of Mormon. But the reality is the questions we're asking about the geography of where these things took place, they come much later than Joseph Smith's time. It's not until really the 20th century that Latter-day Saints start trying to lay down the various... distances and geographical regions that are given in the Book of Mormon to try to create maps and try to you know overlay that over North and South America and say, oh, I could work here. Um, and so it's always a difficult thing when you're looking back in the past to try to find evidence for something that those same people didn't actually believe. Um, th- this happens on on every side of that debate. Of of where the Book of Mormon took place primarily, because people feel so strongly about it, and so they're willing to grab anything as evidence, even if the evidence that's being presented was not intended to do that. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this from both sides, that um, uh, you know of how things can can be taken to say, "Aha, this is now definitive." Um, let me start with the article that is referenced in the church's statement that's in the Times and Seasons. This article um, is discussing various aspects of, of you know, the Book of Mormon history um, and how there's there's evidence that, that there can be found, but here is uh, the part of it. This is uh, from the Times and Seasons, which is a church newspaper. It's... The 15th of July, 1842, it's an editorial. Um, It's signed editor, and, and Joseph Smith is the editor of the Times and Seasons at that time. Now, there certainly are people who would say, well, even though he's signing it as editor, maybe someone else wrote it. Is that a possibility? Of course it's a possibility. It's always a possibility that there are aspects of the sources we are looking at that we don't know. But it's very important that we don't place what we want to be the case ahead of what we can prove to be the case, right? So is it possible someone else wrote this instead of Joseph? Yes. Is it probable? No. Let's say that someone else did write it. Is it probable that Joseph doesn't know it's being published? No. Is it probable that Joseph Smith doesn't agree with it? No. In fact, Joseph does at times put retractions into the times and seasons in the newspaper when there are things published that he's not okay with. So, uh, if you're someone who thinks, well, yeah, this isn't really from Joseph. Again, I understand why you might think that. But there's a difference between proving that. A thing and wanting a thing to be the case. So let's see what he has to say. Um, after listing off these these various things, um, the editor, the author of this article, says if men in their researches into the history of this country, in noticing the mounds, fortifications, statues, architecture, implements of war, of husbandry and ornaments of silver, brass, etc., were to examine the Book of Mormon, their conjectures would be removed and their opinions altered. uh, Uncertainty and doubt would be changed into certainty and facts. Now, of course, Joseph, you know, this is 1842, so modern archaeology that we know doesn't actually exist, right? You have essentially people talking about ancient things. You know, when people are doing biblical archaeology, it's all a quest to find... Exactly what the Bible has already said, not the other way around. Archaeology is a science, doesn't exist yet. That's important to note. So there's all kinds of theories, and that's what Joseph's referring to. Uh, they would find that those things that they are anxiously prying into matters of history unfolded in that book, they would find their conjectures were more than realized that a great and mighty people had inhabited this continent. That the arts, sciences, and religion had prevailed to a very great extent, and that there was a great and there were there was as great and mighty cities on this continent as on the continent of Asia. Babylon, Nineveh, nor any of the ruins of the Levant could boast a more perfect sculpture, better architectural designs, and more imperishable ruins than what we have found on this continent. Stevens and Catherwood's Researches into Central America. This is a book that's published by these. Explore travelers in uh, Central America. Stevens and Catherwood's research in Central America abundantly testify of this thing. The stupendous ruins, the elegant sculpture, and the magnificence of the ruins of Guatemala and other cities corroborate this statement and show that a great and mighty people, men of great minds, clear intellect, bright genius, and comprehensive designs inhabited this continent. Their ruins speak of their greatness. The Book of Mormon unfolds their history. And that's the the end of it. So you can see how this would be taken as evidence that Joseph Smith, or at least the church's newspaper in 1842, sees the ruins of Central America as proof of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. In fact, that's what it specifically says. Look, this is the proof of the great civilizations talked about in the Book of Mormon. So that, of course, can cause someone who is saying that they know exactly where the Book of Mormon took place to say, aha, see, it was published in a church newspaper that it was in Guatemala. We know because it was published in the church newspaper and that proves that it was there. And by the way, here's Nephi's address when he left, uh, this, you know, when he went to the land of Nephi, right? I mean, um, it, it, what what the article also references, though, it references mounds, right? And notice how it's talking about this continent. You have to remember that Central uh, uh, America is considered part of North America. And uh, and, and y- you can see, actually, instead of saying, well, this is proof that all of the Book of Mormon took place in Central America, really what the article is demonstrating is that the author thinks that the Book of Mormon took place everywhere. It took place where there are mound builders. It took place where there are... now. Of course someone today might say well yeah but you know if it's only three days from zarahemla to bountiful and they've worked it all out it can't have existed you know both in the you know in mississippi and also in guatemala but that's a question that's being asked by a 20th and now 21st century mormon it's not a question that's being asked by the writer of this article they aren't mapping out the Book of Mormon to try to figure out how many days journey from X to Y is and where would that fit. That comes later. What does this reflect? It reflects that the author believes that the Book of Mormon took place everywhere, that it is the definitive explanation of the historicity of of Native American civilizations, and of course is pointing to these magnificent ruins uh, of civilizations in, in Central America as proof that there really were major cities in, in the Americas. And so that's that's an argument that's made on, on the one side. Now, on the other side, um, there are those who say, well, yes, but the entire Book of Mormon must have taken place somewhere in the vicinity of... of you know, much further North America, in in the boundaries of what is today, the uh, the United States. There are multiple reasons for that, but the primary argument that's going to be made is uh, regarding Oliver Cowdery's explanation of events that take place in a letter he writes to the church newspaper. Oliver writes a series of letters uh, to. Um, w. W. Phelps, who's the editor of the church newspaper at the time, he writes a series of letters. Um, it, it's it's kind of confusing because this uh, 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 newspaper is, is is in Ohio, right? So remember, Phelps was in Missouri. If you listen to some previous podcasts, he wasn't in Missouri anymore. Um, uh, it, 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 his uh, you know press is destroyed. It's in that that after period that Cowdery determines to write a series of letters to the church, all surrounding his experiences. We know some of the quotes from these letters as Oliver Cowdery is talking about his experience with the translation. But there's a particular part of one of Oliver Cowdery's letters that 20th and 21st century Latter-day Saints have grabbed a hold of, feeling that this provides a definitive answer to something that they think about the geography of the Book of Mormon after describing several aspects of joseph smith getting the plates uh oliver Cowdery in this letter to the church's newspaper says i must now give you some description of the place where the uh, where and the manner in which these records were deposited you are acquainted with the mail road from palmyra wayne county to canandaigua ontario county new york and also as you pass from the former to the latter now i love how oliver writes that like of course you know the road but of course W.W. Phelps did know the road, because remember, he used to be a newspaper editor in Canandaigua, and he loses his job um, because he is investigating the Book of Mormon. Uh, He actually gets thrown in jail for it. So, um, as you pass from the former to the latter place, before arriving at the little village of Manchester, say from three to four, about four miles from Palmyra, you pass a large hill on the east side of the road. Why I say large is because it's it's as large, perhaps, as any in that country. To a person acquainted with this road, a description would be unnecessary, as it is the largest and rises the highest of any on that route. The north end rises quite sudden until it assumes a level with the more southerly extremity, and I think I may say an elevation higher than at the south a short distance, say half or three-fourths of a mile. As you pass towards Canandaigua, it lessens gradually until the surface assumes uh, its common level or it is broken by other smaller hills or ridges, watercourses, and ravines. I think I'm justified in saying that this is the highest hill for some distance around, and I am certain that its appearance, as it rises so suddenly from a plain on the north, must attract the notice of traveler as he passes by. About one mile west rises another ridge of less height, running parallel with the former, leaving a beautiful veil between. The soil is of the first quality for the country, and under a state of cultivation which gives a prospect at once uh, imposing, when one reflects on the fact that here, between these hills, the entire power and national strength of both the Jaredite and Nephites were destroyed. So you see now why this becomes so key. By turning to the 529th and 530th pages of the Book of Mormon, of course he's using an 1830 Book of Mormon if you're trying to find it in your own, you got to get an 1830 Book of Mormon to know what he's talking about. You will read Mormon's account of the last great struggle of his people as they were encamped around this hill, Cumorah. In this valley fell the remaining strength and pride of the once powerful people, the Nephites, once so highly favored of the Lord, but at the, same, but at the time in darkness doomed to suffer extermination by the hand of their barbarous and uncivilized brethren. From the top of this hill, Mormon with a few others after the battle gazed with horror upon the mangled remains of those who were the day before were filled with anxiety, hope, or doubt. A few had fled to the south, were hunted down by the victorious party, and all who would not deny the Savior and his religion were put to death. Mormon himself, according to the record of his son Moroni, was also slain. But a long time previous to the... He goes on to say that this was prophesied, that this was going to happen. But you see the reason why. Here, Cowdery seems to be stating definitively that the same hill in which the records were deposited, where Joseph found the gold plates... Were all, was also the same place where the actual battle took place at the end of the Book of Mormon. And so this is taken as evidence to say, well, the whole Book of Mormon must have taken place if we put our little map down where we're trying to have a three days distance between this place and this place. It had to have happened somewhere in upstate New York or Ohio or, or something like maybe even Michigan, some people have said, because that's, you know, the distances involved and that's where the Book the Book of Mormon final battle took place. Of course, there are other people who have argued that Cowdery is just wrong about this. It wouldn't be the only thing Oliver Cowdery is wrong about in his recounting of the history. In fact, in these same letters, he recounts aspects of Joseph Smith's first vision that are wrong in their chronology and, in fact, have opened the door for antagonists to attack the church saying, oh, yes, they don't even know when this happened and things like that. So uh, you can see why this is taken as evidence for someone who who thinks of this kind of North American model that this proves it. The problem is when you're dealing with sources, what it would really prove is that this is what Oliver Cowdery thought. Um, It wouldn't prove that this is what everyone thought. And again, here's the problem. Cowdery might very well think that the last final battle of the Book of Mormon took place there on the Hill Cumorah, which becomes a pretty standard belief by people for a while. But that doesn't actually mean that that is the case, simply because he believes that. Now, someone might say, yes, but you know Phelps published it in the church newspaper. Again, yes, but Phelps doesn't think that by publishing it, He's making a definitive statement for all time, one that's actually more important than what a current prophet says about that thing. The reality is that there's a lot of variables in this. People who advocate for a more Mesoamerican location of the Book of Mormon, they say things like, well, it would be very normal for uh, Moroni to, in all of his wanderings, his decades of wanderings, to name the place where he finally buries the plates, the same name as the hill where he watched all of his people get slaughtered, because it's kind of a fitting tie-in. That's seen as preposterous by people who take a more North American model by saying, are you trying to tell me that he wandered thousands of miles? To which a Mesoamericanist would say, yes. I mean, that's you can see that the problem here, but but really, I mean, again, theories of where people think things happen Though that's fine. The problem comes when there is an acrimony surrounding it, when there's the suggestion that someone who doesn't accept one theory or the other simply isn't um, it doesn't actually have a testimony or isn't following the prophets, which I think is the whole point of the church's statement on it. You can think a certain thing, but what the church is trying to make clear is Whatever it is you think is not the point of the Book of Mormon, and it's also not a point of being contentious about the Book of Mormon. As I said at the outset, one of the reasons why this discussion argument is a little frustrating is that it's so anachronistic. There is plentiful evidence that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, others, they think of the entirety of North and South America as the land of Zion. In fact, we can go to Wilford Woodruff's journal. He records um, Joseph Smith giving a a sermon on the 8th of April, 1844. Um, And this is what he, he has to say. I have a proclamation to make to the elders. You know the Lord has led the church until this present time. I have now a great proclamation for the elders to teach the church hereafter, which is in relation to Zion. The whole of North and South America is Zion. The mountain of the Lord's house is in the center of North and South America. When the house is done, baptism font erected and finished, and the worthy are washed and anointed and endowed and ordained kings and priests, which must be done in this life. When the place is prepared you must go through all the ordinances of the house of the Lord so that you have so that you who have any dead friends must go through all the ordinances for them the same as for yourselves then the elders are to go through all America and build up churches until all Zion is built up but not to commence to do this until the temple is built up here and the elders endowed and go forth and accomplish the work and build up stakes in all North and South America. He goes on to say, there will be some places ordained for the redeeming of the dead. I think this place will be one. So there will be a gathering fast enough here. Uh, So this is important because one of the arguments that is made uh, against the idea that the Book of Mormon could have taken place anywhere outside of where the United States is today is that well, the United States is the promised land. You know, it's not, it's not Guatemala, it's not Brazil. And so for the blessings or the promises of, you know, the, those who, who worship Jesus on this land have to follow him in order to have this promise of God's protection, they, the argument is that the United States is where the land of Zion is going to be. And, and that's very appealing to people who, who love their country, And want to feel God's hand supporting it the problem is it's very clear by the end of Joseph Smith's life that when he is talking about Zion he's not talking about just the United States in fact he's very clearly saying it's both the North and South America and in fact his statement on it is so profound that what does Brigham Young do so after that Brigham Young arose and said, The above doctrine was true, and I will add a remark to it. If a man tries to rise by pulling another down, he will sink as soon as a piece of pot metal. Preach faith and repentance and baptism. Say nothing but repentance to this generation. We need not go into mysteries. Preach the same over again. When I heard Brother Joseph make his proclamation yesterday, I thought it was a sweepstakes when he said North and South America was Zion. Any elder that will be wise when he gets his endowment can go into any city and build up the largest church in that city. This proves the prophet true. So this this idea of, of it's an exhilarating one to Brigham Young. It's not just... The United States—that is, this blessed land of Zion—it's exhilarating to him that Joseph Smith is saying that that all of it is the land of Zion, meaning all of it has that blessing and that promise. The other anachronistic thing, um, and we've discussed this before, and we'll we'll obviously discuss it again as it falls along my lines of research, is that by the time Joseph Smith is saying this, he's actually already made the decision to leave the United States. Um, By late 1843, Joseph's already decided that the United States is essentially incompatible with the practice of the Latter-day Saints. And then, of course, Joseph's going to be murdered uh, shortly thereafter and nothing's going to be done about it. This does not dissuade Latter-day Saint leaders that the United States is somehow a fallen nation because it allowed the murders of the smiths as well as many other people in missouri and in illinois and there was nothing ever done about it when the when as we talked about with the council of 50 when the latter day saints leave illinois they very much believe they are leaving the united states in part because the gentiles of the united states have rejected the gospel and the judgments of god are coming upon them and in fact There is very little over the course of the next five decades that persuades any of those Latter-day Saints in Utah, while they will then be persecuted even further, that anything else... There's nothing that persuades them that that isn't the case, that America isn't a fallen nation. They see the Civil War as the just judgments of God upon a nation that murdered the prophets and cast out the righteous. They see the Book of Mormon saying when you cast the righteous out from among you, the judgments of God must surely come. So when you try to read into an 1850 statement or an 1840 statement or an 1835 statement of someone from the past to try to prove what you currently want to believe about Book of Mormon geography, part of the peril that you're fraught with is these people actually believe that the United States itself was a fallen nation as demonstrated by the extermination orders for which there was no uh, reprieve coming from the government, as demonstrated by Martin Van Buren saying, your cause is just and I can do nothing for you, as demonstrated by not a single person being convicted for the murders of Joseph and Hiram Smith or the murder of Amanda Barnes, Smith's Husband or children, at the, the murder of the people in, in Hans Mill The murder of Edmund Durfee. I mean, when the Latter-day Saints leave the United States, they are, as John Taylor and Orson Pratt are saying publicly, bidding farewell to what they see as a corrupt and evil nation. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not saying that I, you know, I don't love, my my dad is an immigrant to the United States and he loved the United States. It, Fourth of July was his favorite holiday and it wasn't even close. But we have to be careful that we don't project our current understandings and beliefs onto people from the past. When we do it, it causes us to use sources like the 1842 editorial to the times and seasons or Oliver Cowdery's uh, article uh, to the church. um, It causes us to use them for purposes that the authors never intended them to be used for. And that can lead us down a way where we end up maybe becoming contentious over something that the current prophet is saying, don't be contentious over this. It's unfortunate that in the Community of Christ Church that they have stopped preaching the Book of Mormon to many of their congregations. This is the former Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now renamed the Community of Christ. And when I asked one of their leaders about this, their response was that they felt like the messenger was getting in the way of the message as he described it further to me, everyone hates you guys. And I think he meant our church. Everyone hates Mormons. And so the very name Book of Mormon was causing people to not listen to what we have to say. And so we just, you know, many of our congregations don't use it anymore and we certainly don't preach it in many places. I I fear that we have a situation similar like that today among Latter-day Saints. Who, of course are desperate and curious like the early latter-day saints to know where the city of zion was going to be located we have latter-day saints today who are desperate to know where exactly did the book of mormon take place like martin harris we want to take the characters to show people so we can prove to them that what we believe isn't made up but i think we need to go back to what the church is actually saying what president nelson is saying and that is You know, these theories that might be interesting, they can't become the bedrock of why we believe and certainly not the bedrock of why we accuse others of non-belief. The Book of Mormon is a miracle. It is a miracle that anyone who reads honestly will know that did not come from Joseph Smith. Whether the Book of Mormon took place in Guatemala, or in Michigan, whether it took place in Baja or in Brazil, whether it took place in Tierra Del Fuego or on the, 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 the Isthmus of Panama, what matters is this is an account of the Savior Jesus Christ appearing and a record that he really was resurrected, that he really lives. Hopefully. I haven't offended anyone on either side of these discussions because of this discussion here, but I do want to present what it is the Church is saying about it. You can have your beliefs one way or the other. Certainly there are scholars um, who are far you know, better trained in archaeology uh, and, and Mesoamerican history than me who really feel strongly that the Book of Mormon likely took place in those areas. But until we have more direction from the leaders of the church themselves, I think it's best to follow what it is the church is saying. And that is, you can theorize, but let's not get caught up. And certainly not so caught up that we contentiously attack one another. When in fact, we should just be grabbing a hold of one another, grateful that someone else besides ourselves believes the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.